titiroki muri rā kia mōhe o ai te huarahi kei mua. Look to the past to understand the future. E nā mana e nā reo, nau piki mai, nau kake mai ki te hōtaka nei a te ahikā, ko marae rakarakua hau. Ko Justin Maria hau, ko tēnei te wahanga e hāpai nei i ngā kaupapa Māori o te motu, i runga i te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Welcome back to Te Ahikā here on Radio New Zealand National and our documentary series Whakatefetefa, where we delve in-depth into a particular take or issue we're interested in. This week we're looking at what is marae justice and a Māori justice system. In 1985, Moana Jackson led a roadshow of sorts around the country with Dean Hapita and Henemoa Awatere. They were charged with meeting Māori and recording Māori experiences of the justice system. And the findings, as you can imagine, were pretty grim. Marae justice, that's a buzzword that was generally associated with one of our guests, Aroha Tiri, and it really became popularised during the late 1980s and early 1990s when, through the social agency she managed in Hamilton, sexual abuse cases were taken to the marae to be heard and the outcomes were based within the realm of the marae, that is, tikanga Māori was reinforced. While viewed as a largely positive process for those whānau affected by sexual abuse, mainstream New Zealand seized on what was effectively a demonstration of manamotu hake, that is Māori self-determination, as a negative. There were even accusations that marae-based justice was advocating separatism and apartheid. Let's put it in context though, eh? We are talking a few years after the Springbok tour. And according to Aroha Tiri, until Māori and Pākehā alike start having an honest dialogue with each other about this country and its past, we will always be in a relationship of aggressor and victim. She fills us in retrospectively about that period in her life. I recall um, one accusation that I was attempting to lead apartheid that was by Doug Graham. Fortunately, through a radio interview, I was given the opportunity to speak and he was on the other end. We got the opportunity to listen and he changed his opinion after that. Someone who's never really left the debate is Moana Jackson. He's with us and it seems the influence of the research he did back in 1988 looking at the impact on the justice system had upon Māori shaped policies today. He reminds us of what one participant to that research said to him, that maybe now more than ever, as deals are reneged upon left, right and centre, seems to ring true. Indeed, one of the contributors that I remember, a woman from Ngāti Hane, Christina Linden, said that she can't look at Māori crime without looking at the crime of colonisation. And then I'm at Te Poho Rawiri Marae, Gisborne, seeing a youth court hearing in action that seems to reduce recidivism and that the Ministry of Justice is hoping to model throughout the country. That's all coming up in this week's edition of Te Ahika in episode two of Whakatifatifa. Ko te kaupapa tuatahi. So this is how it was described to me. Tane, the first man, grew lonely. He wanted a mate and so he laid on the ground and made a woman from the earth. That woman was Hine Ahuone. They then had a daughter, Hine Titama. Tane eventually mated with her, and they had children. Hine Titama had her suspicions that her husband, Tane, was also her father. When she confronted him about this, he replied, Ask the posts of the house, which was a way of saying he didn't want to answer the question. 
She figured it out, though, and eventually took her own life because of the shame and the realisation that incest had been committed. And in dying, she became Hine Nui Te Pō. And as she died, although different versions say that she left, she turned to him and said, You will look after our children in life, and I will look after them in death. Now, some may say that this story is a perfect example of actions having consequences and of tikanga Māori in practice. I just know how it was explained to me, Justine, and that was the obvious, that incest was not acceptable and that for every action there's a reaction and that certain laws within the Māori world apply when broken. Which leads us to Aroha Tiri and the work she was doing in the late 1980s and early 1990s to help clients coming through her social service agency in Hamilton disclosing sexual abuse. Now, last week, I told you all about my resistance to Facebook and how it was all futile since Tahi Carr has now joined that community. Well, actually, thanks to all of that, I was able to track down Aroha, who still lives in Hamilton, and she was able to reflect on the groundbreaking work she did back then when it was known as Marae Justice. Uh, Skills. 
and could see that it wasn't out here being practiced um, in its totality. So I decided that I would forge ahead and have a go at it um, because I couldn't see anything else working. And so I started to um, work with therapeutic models within the Marae system and therapeutic models being counselling um, within the protocols of tikanga and the mana of tikanga, protocols of kawa and whanaungatanga. So that's how it all got kicked off. A lot of clients came and talked about their sexual abuse. And the um, deep whakama that victims firstly carried, and then when I started to work with offenders, I noted the extent of their whakama as well. Um, and then there's the whanau attached to that, and then we move out to, to hapu, and so you're working with, I realised that we're working with, um, you know, the ahua of offending or being offended against or violated against is very, very deep for Māori. We carry it very deep. And it's a Māori that lives on eternally if we don't get in there with some interventions that are appropriate to us. So that's kind of how it got kicked off. So it was through your social service work that you eventually ended up moving towards a marae-based yes. um, justice system yes. and as it was um, coined back then. Yeah, and, and focused, um, just putting my energies um, and commitment into that particular part of my work. I moved aside from counselling as we know it, or Western model, which is what I was working with, and I went full on into... Um, Marae Justice. How did it work? It worked very effectively for Fano and indeed for Hapu. And I even find, I hear stories today where there's a Marae Hui and somebody will stand up and it's given them the strength um, to challenge uh, Komato or offenders. Um, so for me, that it worked. It worked for a lot of people. Uh, worked for some, and also the offender, because you've got to you've got to make change with the offender in order to make that absolute change, because they carry around a fucking ma that's scary. And you know, if they move on, pass on, they leave that modi, they leave that memory, they leave suspicion. And so if you can go in and work with that and bring it up to the forefront and have the right people sitting there as a part of the process in Wananga on Marae, then what you actually do is that you alter that modi, you alter um, the wairua from offender and from mamai, and you help to clear it and move it on because everybody's a part of the process. So, Aroha, I mean, that requires a degree of ownership, though, eh? Uh, they, absolutely. You, you can't... Um, they've got to take responsibility. So you've got to use a technique that works for Māori where they are taking responsibility and in front of the appropriate people, which is your whānau. So I'm guessing that you were working with... Uh person who was abused, then the person who abused them, yeah. and then talking, 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 and then trying to bring them together to uh, talk talk it through, and then to make uh, the perpetrator accountable for their behaviour. Yeah. yeah. Well, you don't do too much talking beforehand, but, but there is a process where you have to go around. And of course, 
I would get approached by the victim first and that would be the starting of it. And from that I would go through a, a process of who is it or who are they, who are your supports within your whānau, um, and if you haven't got any, who could you get as a support that you can absolutely trust? Um, and I'd take the lead from, from the victim, where's your marae, how do you feel about your connection to that? Because sometimes victim will blame their whakapapa for what they've gone through. So you go through the process of bringing it back to the offender. And then from there, I talk about the process and how long that might take and what they need to do or not do. And not do is to talk too much about it because that's the facilitator's role. And that's how I saw my role. <coughs> I then would look for the strengths within the whānau and not too many um, and bring them on board with the victim and with the court at all and you have to keep them strong to head towards the process on the marae, which is accountability. Then from there, because now you've protected the victim, um, go over to the other side, which is offender supporters. Um, the strengths there, talking to them that this is going to be a process that's going to happen, um, and then go to the offender or get the support people or somebody within the whānau um, who the offender is likely to look up to, to bring that offender to the marae. I would have a little bit of time with the offender. I would talk about it's been brought out on the table, um, the process is to go to the marae, and um, if you want to uh, want to deny that, that's where you do it. But the court it was going to be done there. Uh, and so somebody within the whānau would bring the offender to the marae, we'd go for it. We try and get there as quickly as possible. Because once the corridor is out, you know, the energy gets pretty heated and it gets pretty scary for the victims. And the offenders can also build up an aggression. And so you can't take your time about it. So when you do your corridor, you make sure you get it right the first time because you don't get a second chance. Um, and then you make sure that the marae is all set and the whānau themselves will bring in who they believe out of the whānau should be coming. And there's usually no less than 20. Um, and then you go in and facilitate the whole corridor, and it is about accountability um, by the offender, and the whānau have a unique way of doing that. Within um, our tikanga process, it's actually a beautiful process, but very effective. Yeah, because... Uh, there's no watering down. Because what you've explained, uh, it relies a lot on the value that the victim and the perpetrator places upon tikanga Māori. Um, partly, partly. It relies more, I would say, in the first instance, the value they have in their whānau or whānau members or particular whānau members because those are the ones that bring them on. And when they come into the marae, see, the marae has a unique way without even speaking of um, getting a wairua to a good place and keeping it all safe. Even if there isn't such a connection to the marae, the marae always does what the marae always does, and that, that's mahana wairu and all of those wonderful things. So already you alleviate any possible aggression. Now, if we took that same process into a hall, 
um, it's got a different energy, it's got a different vibration, therefore you get a different reaction. Aroha, would it then rely on the victim and the perpetrator having whakapapa to that marae then? Yes. That's, one of them has to whakapapa. But most of my cases were whānau anyway. I, I picked up marae justice, particularly for whānau and whakapapa. Um, there was occasion when one didn't connect to that particular marae. But you see, what we did was then made sure that there was some sort of connection for that person to bring them in. Because we always connect one way or another. It's just a matter of doing our homework and um, letting them know there is a connection here to this marae. Um, you know, because we go back through tipuna and through waka and somehow, some way we connect. We don't always know that. So the role, again, of whānau facilitator is to bring that information forward. So looking back at that time, which was just a little over, a little over 20 years ago, mm. were you working solely with uh, people who had offended against their own? So were you dealing primarily with people within the tainui rohe? No, no. I was going out, I was getting called to go out to other areas as well and often too I had Iwi Social Services calling me in to show them the process. Now that was that was over 20 years ago. Mm. Does marae-based justice of this kind still take place around the country? I hear from time to time that a certain uh, that somebody, an individual has taken their case to the marae on their own um, but there's nothing, no formal um, establishment that I know of that's um, running this. Even though in some ways we've become more dis- disconnected from the marae? I don't believe we've become more disconnected. When we go back 20 years ago um, and 10 years before that, we're talking 30 years now, the kohanga reo started then. And so we've got thousands and thousands of tamariki that started then, have gone through the kohanga reo system, gone to Kurakopapa and the uh, wānanga Aotearoa, um, so they, the last 30, 30 years, those are the ones that are more connected to the marae um, and more connected to tikanga and what that is. So it probably got more of a chance of it be working better now than I was having back then because these people, you know, a lot have come through these um, institutes. So we've got it. We've, we've got our tikanga and things like that in place, which means when you're going through those systems that, of course, you have to be a part of your marae. Now, at the time that you were conducting these things around the country, the media coverage of what was going on was immense. Mm. Did that have an impact on you at all? I certainly got my fair share of um, hammering, I'd say, from, from the media. I recall um, one accusation that I was attempting to lead apartheid that was by Doug Graham. Fortunately, through a radio interview, I was given the opportunity to speak, and he was on the other end. We got the opportunity to listen, and he changed his opinion after that. But it was pretty rough um, politically and with the media. Um, And, you know, I could cope with Māori, and there wasn't too much... um, negativity coming across, but there were attempts to quiet me down. Um, and there was uses of my age. I was in my 30s then, that I was a wahine, um, that I was setting up kudos for myself. And I recognised that that was 
um, coming across because they wanted me to keep quiet and that they felt that this, this was something that Māori should take care of quietly. The point was we weren't and um, weren't likely to unless somebody pulled it out um, for it to be looked at really thoroughly. Um, and then they got over that and started to back off. I, I got a few attempts at um, physically quietening me down as well. But I believed in the COVID. I still believe in it now. Um, I believe it, it has a place now and perhaps our iwi are ready for it now, more so than they were back then because there weren't too many that were willing to stand beside me and um, say that they were supporting the kaupapa. And, uh, you know, because there was fear about it. Um, but now I believe that our people would stand up and say, yes, let's do this process. Let's go for it. The, the level of child abuse, the level of sexual abuse that's still, still here, a lot of un, um, unhealed whānau, and you can see it in their lifestyles and the ahua, um, they're still whispering about it. Um, so, you know, I'd be quite excited if somebody picked up and ran with it now. Kia ora, aroha tere no tainui iwi. What a wahine. I understand, Mariah, that she ended up burning out and retiring from that type of mahi. She did. Well, she got death threats and she just found the attention too distracting from her actual work, which, you know, when you look at it, was all about developing safe processes for all the parties concerned, right? A little later on in Tiahika, Nati Kahunganu Mwana Jackson actually talks about the role media plays in perpetuating the perception that Māori are more prone to violent acts than non-Māori and how that plays out in reality. Think all those child abuse cases where newspapers blatantly show photographs of dead Māori babies. Now, Aroha mentioned that marae-based justice cases weren't just taking place in Hamilton, but all over the country, as this archival recording from Hardy Williams from the 1980s shows. And consequences, though heartbreaking, were very, very real. Last week, I had a Nina Buxton talk about banishing people from their village for the rest of their lives, where they seem to be walking in the wilderness, yearning to go back home, that they have to rehabilitate themselves in their new communities. And um, they once saw this particular person at uh, Waifetu in Wellington, and they all burst out crying because they hadn't seen him for years. And yet he's banished forever. He's not allowed to go back. He's not allowed to be carried back um, when he dies. And he's not allowed to be buried at home. Are there similar parallels with Tainui? Aye, there is. Only There's a lot of Aroha. Aye, there is, because um, I can relate to that sort of um, banishment, but I, I would say when, when, when an offender is banished, I don't think uh, um, he's banished without the thought of the, the iwi um, not wanting him back again. Surely, surely there is there will come a day when they will bring him back again, or or her. Um, those were the were the tikanga mai murano. Ingari, I believe this day and age, because we our komatu are, are fading away so fast. I don't. I believe in this day and age, we need them. We need to bring them back. For a time, yes, uh, banish them, but not totally. 
um, I, I really would feel for that, that person, all persons. Would you prefer stripping their mana away from them? I would prefer that, but um, not fully st stripping them for a time limit only. And of course, the offender will earn earn that. Well, he, he will gradually get that mana back again. But of course, he goes through the process of earning it again. Because again, I'm saying, we start doing that to all of our kaumatua. We hardly got any. So, you know, where do people like me and our rangatahi get uh, the tikanga that we need to be learning now? I mean, if we banish all of that, we've got nothing left. Hare Williams interviewing Rahira in the 1980s. If you'd like to listen to this programme again, you can do so after the broadcast at radionz.co.nz forward slash teahika. Head to our website, navigate yourself around our page, join our email. I'm Maraya Rakaraku, this is Teahika, and you're listening to episode two of Whakatefetefa, our documentary series that looks at issues in depth. This week we're looking at Māori and the justice system and marae-based justice. So, what is the difference between marae-based justice and a Māori justice system? OK, before we hear from Ngāti Kahununu lawyer Moana Jackson, let's look at the term Māori justice system, eh? Maira no, there was muru, utu. Now muru, that's when, say, one party had done something to somebody else and it wasn't fair they would enact revenge, which could be going to that village and ransacking it mm. and maybe taking people and having them as your taurekareka or as your slaves. And utsu and, and take and ea, so if there was um, you know, something that, uh, in terms of rivalry, how you spoke about it before, marae utu was a means of revenge. I reckon it was a way of righting wrongs. So you know how we operate on tapua noa, and if things get out of balance... You have to find a way of correcting it. Mm. And because as a people, Māori understood traditionally what those things meant, they were always finding a way of correcting like a hara. So for instance, what we just heard there from Hardy Williams, how a karaua was virtually exiled from his people for molesting children. So basically he could never, ever go back there again. Uh, he would never learn his marae when he died. And his children would never know that he came from there. So this is the justice system that operates in Te Ao Māori without it being written into perceived law. Yeah, this well, this is law, L-O-R-E. You know, there, right. are, there are consequences to actions that were practised. Mm-hmm. And then there's um, te tatau paunamu. What do you understand that to be, Justine? Okay, so te tatau paunamu to me is... Um, a, a greenstone wall or greenstone door, and uh, to me that is when you're basically putting up the white feather or waving the white flag. I hate to put it in a modern context because in Tao Māori, a green a ponamu door is like a peace offering, really. For for example, two parties who perhaps have rivalry to walk through that door and to um, you know kua ia te raru. You know it's been put aside. So, mm. And there are incidences of that throughout our history, throughout Māori history, um, and it didn't necessarily need to be a um, physical object. It could have been a marriage between two peoples, two rival parties. Te whanua apanui Ngāti Parau is a good example. You know, the history books, um, 
you know, according to the Kraiwa Eruera Sterling, um, they've had rivalry from, you know, Mairano way back in the in the, in the day, and um, there was um, Tomo or, or, or Tomo um, that was strategic so that iwi could benefit f- and for future generations um, in a peaceful manner. Or yeah. So what we're talking about are pre-existing um, systems of justice within Te Ao Māori A that were practised and adhered to. And then in the 1980s, as there were calls for a separate Māori justice system, I remember my own involvement with this. <laughs> so you had an experience at Canterbury University, Maraia? I did, as a first-year student, uh, first-year law student. There was myself and the other five Māori that were there. And um, Wana Jackson at that time was all part of the roadshow. He was going around the Motsu talking to different people, advocating for a separate Māori justice system. And I remember us sitting right up the front and him, Moana, standing in front of us, deflecting all the incredibly racist cordial that was coming from students and staff. And just the hostility, Justine. I remember one of the students actually said to him, um, and how will you fund the separate Maori justice system? And he looked at her and said, well, Māori pay taxes too. And just as he did then... Moana Jackson explains what the difference is between marae-based justice, which is what Arohateri is largely associated with, and the separate Māori justice system that, frankly, in today's world doesn't seem to have such a polarising effect. Or does it? Police, iwi liaison officers, family group conferences, FGCs, are common words now, but back in the 1980s there were yet-to-be-developed concepts that largely came to life through the work of Moana Jackson, Henemoa Awatere and Dean Hapita. It's been interesting to see the pick-and-choose approach used when developing solutions for Māori. And as we wait with bated breath at the delivery of Fano Ora by the national-led government, let's see whether the findings of the 1988 report Moana Jackson was so key in writing came to anything 20 years later. He explains the background to the project where Māori were able to voice their concerns about the justice system. Well, in, in 1985, um, the government almost seemed to realise um, for the first time that most of the men in jail were Māori and so they thought they should do some in-depth research on why that was the case. Some research had been done before but so they approached a Parker psychiatrist and she began the work. Um, Her name was Judith Reinken but then very quickly realised that it needed to be done by Māori and we had met before and so she approached the Justice Department as it then was and said perhaps you should ask this guy to do it. Um, So I got approached to do some research on the relationship between Māori and the existing criminal justice system and I managed to get two young people on board as researchers because I wanted to have rangatahi with me. Uh, One was Dean Harpeta, um, who then was what they used to call a sort of street kid in Upper Hutt, um, who's then gone on, of course, to become the, I think he's sometimes called the godfather of hip-hop music yes. in New Zealand. And the other one was Hanemo Awatere, who had just left school. And 
we then hit the road, basically, accompanied by Komatu and Kui from Kaunganu to really just talk to our people about why they thought our young people mainly were getting into trouble, um, what they thought of the police, the courts, probation and all of those things. And we were on the road for about 18 months and we talked in total to just over 2,000 Māori people, um, old and young, from Te Taitukuro um, down to Te Waipounamu. Um, we had hui on marae and private homes and gang pads and prisons and schools. And it became a really in-depth assessment of what our people were thinking, really. Um, what were our people thinking, Moana? Well, there were there were a number of issues which came out. First of all, there was real anger about what was seen to be the inherent racism in, in all parts of the justice system from the courts through to the police. Um, but then in terms of why our people were offending, um, they constantly said you can't look at a young Māori in a prison cell in isolation. You have to look at he or she in the context of what has happened to our people. So they gave a broader analysis and indeed one of the contributors that I remember, a woman from Ngāti Hane, Christina Linden, said that she can't look at Māori crime without looking at the crime of colonisation. And so that then became the base on, on which we wrote the original report. We made a number of recommendations ranging from um, increasing the number of Māori staff and, say, the police, um, to ultimately the suggestion that there needed to be a debate about the re-establishment of Māori justice processes so that we could deal with our own who got into trouble. But ultimately we argued that you won't bring down the rate of offending unless you address the wider injustices and iniquities in a colonising society. And the report was then published in 1988. Um, the government initially refused to publish it. Um, but we had a lot of support from around the country and it was a, eventually saw the light of day. Um, some of its recommendations were picked up and adapted or changed completely because we talked, for example, about um, restorative justice. Uh, that was picked up and then turned into something quite different. We talked about Fano conferencing with young offenders and that was picked up and changed completely and became family group conferences. And so a lot of the things that our people said were acknowledged, um, but then the solutions that our people put forward were, as I said, either changed or ignored completely. And the very suggestion that we should reclaim and rebuild a Māori justice system met with this amazingly violent reaction, really, um, from lawyers and editorial writers. And we got 
that was 20 years ago, and we decided in 2007 that, that because the 20-year anniversary was coming up, we should perhaps revisit the research, um, see if anything had changed, um, what might needed, what might need to be done now and in the future, and, and so on. And we've been working on that co-papa and trying to put together the report um, since 2008. Um, we again travelled, talking to lots of people. We had a national hui which Kahunganu, um helped organise. And now have a new set of research findings. And what are those research findings? Well, the first one, sadly, is that things haven't changed, and in fact, they've got worse. Um, the rate of Maori men being imprisoned has remained about the same, about 51, 52% of the total population in prison. Um, but the rate of Māori women being in prison has skyrocketed um, from less than 6% to over 60%. So in 20 years, that's a really stark and shocking um, change in the statistics. Um, the people that we spoke to, um, although 20 years have passed, were remarkably consistent in, in their views um, compared to what our people were saying 20 years ago. Um, they all advocated even more forcefully than they did in the 1980s that there needed to be a re-establishment of a Māori justice process to deal with deal with it, and that came very clear at the um, hui we had in Kaunganu as well. Indeed, one of the suggestions made at that hui, which we've incorporated in the report, is that every iwi actually begin training at least five of its people skilled in Māori mediation and resolution dispute processes. Um, we're recommending that one of the wānanga um, perhaps pick up and develop the idea of a Māori dispute resolution process and then actually be available for those iwi people to be trained so that we can actually just begin doing that ourselves. Um, and and the, the report looked at the whole range of things, again, from the police to prisons that, that we looked at in the 1980s. And there's a difference between marae-based justice processes and a Māori justice system, if you like. What has happened is that some marae have now agreed to deal with certain issues that are referred to it by the court, um, but whatever decision they make has to be approved by the court. Um, so the authority still rests with the Crown rather than with our people, and our people have worked in that area very hard to try to be of help to our rangatahi who get into trouble and their whānau and so on, but they are constrained by the fact that it is essentially a court process. That's uh, just changed location? It's changed location, uh, but little else has, has changed. And more recently, 
recently um, due to the efforts of Judge Hemi Tomanu in, in Auckland, uh, uh, sorry, in Gisborne, um, there are now youth called hearings on Pohorawiri Marae in Gisborne. And that again is just a park out court process on a marae. Um, I remember in, 19, in the 1980s one of our komatos said that he wouldn't want to see that happen because the only thing that would change would be that the judge would have to take his shoes off when he got to the door. Um, but I think what's happening in Gisborne is interesting because the judge is from there. He has whakapapa ties to there. He has very wide uh, networks within the iwi there. Um, so while it is still very much a Pākehā system controlled by Pākehā law, um, I think Hemi is doing an amazing job, um, partly because of the person he is, um, but also because it's happening at home for him. And we were disturbed when we were doing the research to hear that now some other courts are wanting to sit on marae as well. Um, but we're convinced that that will, and certainly the views of our people seem to be clear, that just transplanting a Pākehā judge onto the marae or even a Māori judge from another iwi onto a marae um, is fraught with dangers. Um, one of the most obvious being that for many of our young people who have been alienated from our marae, um, if their first involvement with a marae is a court sitting, um, then that will further increase their alienation. And it's certainly the view from our research that it's that alienation from whom they are as Māori that is an important causative factor in, in them ending up in jail or getting into trouble. So I, I think there are very real dangers that we jeopardise the sanctuary of the marae um, if we set up a Pākehā court process on it, that every culture um, develops its own culturally distinctive justice system um, because humans realise very early in their history that, that you cannot live in a lawless society. And our people were not lawless. And so there was a legal system that dealt with everything from how to allocate the use of land to how to settle whānau disputes um, across the whole range of human activity. And it was based on our own unique Māori philosophies and kaupapa, so that the aim was always, if a wrong had been done by one person against another, not just to impose a sanction, but also to restore the whakapapa relationship between the parties. So its aim was always restorative, um, rather than the adversarial sanctioning process of the Pākehā system. Um, so we had that system in place for hundreds of years. And normally, of course, when people go from one country to another, say if someone goes today from England to France, then they will accept the jurisdiction of French law while they're in France. If an Italian goes from Italy to Germany, they will accept the jurisdiction of German law while they're living in Germany. But when Parker came here, of course, they refused to accept 
our jurisdiction. In fact, they said we didn't even have law and that they would carry their law with them and that eventually, of course, that law would become ours. And so we now have Parker talking about one law for all, um, which by which they mean their law, um, which conveniently affects that for hundreds of years before 1840, there was one law for all in this country and, and it was ours. So what we suggested in 88 and what many of our people continue to advocate is that we simply reclaim the right as part of our rangatiratanga um, to have that system in operation again because you can't actually exercise rangatiratanga unless you have the right to make law, if you like, and the right to settle disputes in accordance with tikanga. And so there are many instances now where we and Hapu um, try to internally settle disputes. I, I get called in a lot to um, mediate um, disputes between different Hapu or whānau. Um, in Ngāti Kāhungunu we have re-established what traditionally was called the Pōkai Tara, which was a way of resolving disputes at home, and that is now actually in place in the Ngāti Kāhungunu constitution. Um, and as was suggested at the national hui that we had held in 2007, that the Crown in the current situation will never allow us to do it, so we should just do it anyway. And that's what a number of our people um, are advocating, as is clear from our research. That can work hapu to hapu. What about disputes between Māori Pākehā? Well, that's a bigger issue, and it's always raised, um, and it gets back to the point I made before. Why is it that when Pākehā go to France, they accept French jurisdiction, but when they came here, they didn't accept ours? There seems to me a basic injustice, a basic racist colonising presumption and that failure to recognise our jurisdiction. So the question for me then is not what happens now if there's a dispute between, say, a Māori and a Pākehā, but rather what are we going to do to change the constitutional situation so that our jurisdiction is properly recognised and so a lot of our people in the research talked about, um, as I have, the, of the need for constitutional transformation and part of that constitutional transformation to find a new constitutional system that is based in this land rather than the Westminster Parliament in London. And part of that change will be to look at a different way of resolving disputes, a different way of seeking justice. And when that is done, then the jurisdictional issues um, get addressed too. But unless that broader constitutional change takes place, it's actually very difficult to answer that question because there's no framework in place for which jurisdiction can be exercised outside Iwi and Hapu. Now, also since the 20-year anniversary, you um, you said that the rate of Māori women offending has increased, and you know, even in some of the media reports that I've read, you can't help but notice there's more and more wahine 
who um, seem to be committing the most violent of crimes. That's, well, that, 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 that again is partly what the media focuses on, of course. Um, any Māori involved in an alleged violent offence um, gets media coverage um, far greater, and the evidence is clear on this, far greater than, say, a Pākehā person who commits a violent crime. One just needs to look, for example, at the um, media coverage of child abuse cases where the, the victim is a Māori child. And from the media coverage, one would think that Māori are actually the greatest child abusers in the country when the evidence clearly shows we're not, actually. Um, but you wouldn't know that from the media coverage. So the fact that Māori women may appear in the media committing violent crime does, does not mean that those are the only offences that they're getting put to prison for. And in fact, they get put to prison for what are often crimes of poverty, um, debt, um, so-called welfare benefit fraud, and so on. And that, that indicates a basic systemic and racist bias in the, in the Parkhouse system as well. Um, you know, a millionaire businessman will get community service. Uh, a young Māori solo mother will get sent to prison. And the evidence in our research shows that to be absolutely clear. Um, so what has happened is, is not so much that Māori women are committing more offending, but rather that the system now also is targeting Māori women in the way it's traditionally targeted Māori men, um, with catastrophic um, effects for our women, for our children and our whānau, really. Kia ora, Moana Jackson. For additional information about what Moana Jackson was speaking about and for links to the report, head to radionz.co.nz forward slash does a different location really make a difference? That is, setting a hearing in a marae rather than a courthouse. Marae found out when she sat in on some youth court hearings at the Poho Orawari Marae, Gisborne, late last year. It's 25 to 9, Friday. We're just making our way onto the Poho Orawari Marae. And, um, gee, there's a hearty nasty there standing there in his shorts and singlet. <laughs> it is absolutely freezing. Uh, there's a group of about maybe 20 gathered. We're just going under the tāwhara. Uh, the judges here, Judge Hikaka. There's a range of people here. There's police, social workers, the um, young people, their whānau, the queer stands to do the karanga. and it is absolutely freezing. Ko Taranaki te maunga, ko Manawa Pō te awa, ko Ngārua Hinei, Ngāti Tuwhoritoa, Ngāti Manawa Pō tō Ngā Iwi, Ko Ngāti Te Māhoro o Te Hapu, ko Hikaka Te Whānau, ko Greg Hikaka Ahau, he kaiwhakawā o te kōti rangatahi, me te kōti whānau. What makes the Marae Court any different to having a hearing at, at the courtroom? The difference is obviously the venue. Uh, the 
difference also lies in the uh, process that is appropriate to the venue. And that means uh, young offenders and their families are welcomed on, along with all the professionals. Uh, along with you as a judge? Yes, uh, that's right. Um, lawyers, social workers, um, lay advocates, uh, anyone who's involved in the youth justice process will attend the poor heady and uh, be welcomed on and, and go through that process. Now that is uh, obviously a marked departure from the standard uh, process in the standard uh, district court setting where a name is called, often over a loudspeaker, a person is um, to respond to their name and uh, when they go and stand in the dock or wherever it might be, their lawyer stands and addresses the court on their behalf. Now, at the marae we have the uh, pōhiri. Uh, we then usually break for a cup of tea after that and uh, then start the day's hearings by calling the individual young people and their families uh, one at a time thereafter. The young people will often, well, they'll always be uh, greeted by a kaumatua who sits with the judge. Uh, the uh, young person themselves will usually respond uh, with a mihi, um, introduce their families, and um, uh, some, depending on uh, how far they've got with the process and their individual level of confidence, may go on to explain that uh, why everyone's there and, and what they've done and... Uh, as you'd have seen today, uh, some apologise to people, uh, the victims of their offending, their families, and uh, uh, and then we moved to the professionals so that they have the opportunity to have their input. And in the Marae setting, the role of the lay advocates in particular uh, has come into sharper focus because they advocate on behalf of the young person with respect to cultural issues, uh, values that the young people um, are learning as a result of the process that they've become involved with. It's not to say that they may not have been exposed uh, to aspects of their culture in the past, but for many uh, they've certainly lost the connection. So underlying the process is the opportunity for young people to uh, make the connections again, for their families to make the connections, um, for some to uh, re-establish uh, relationships that have been lost through time, distance. To the marae. To the, to the marae and... Uh, in a more general sense also to uh, more about who they are as people and particularly who they are as Māori. Um, in the marae setting uh, assists with that because you can't escape the uh, some of the uh, mana, the, the dignity attached to the marae displayed obviously through the... Um, you know the carvings and and uh, and the, the the setting itself. 
Um, and so it's yeah, that reconnection process is, is uh, very important because I, I believe that if they uh, gain a, a positive and better appreciation of who they are, uh, it may cause more reflection and thought before they do things that no one finds acceptable. <laughs> So Judge Hekaka, you sat in on the Marae Court here in Gisborne. Normally you'd be sitting in in Papakura in Auckland. Now, most of the rangatahi that I heard here today, they whakapapa to this area, right, to Ngāti Poro, to, to Ranganui Akiwa. Up in the city, you're dealing with lots of pan-tribal youth at Manurewa Marae, how how does how, how how are they able to reconnect in there if they you know they come from Napuhi or or um, Taranaki? What's been happening at uh, Rawari in, in Gisborne here uh, has been happening since May two thousand and eight. Uh, there is a a general view that it's successful and uh, that it's working well and it's enabling those connections to uh, tell Māori for these young people who may have lost that connection. Uh, but you're, you're quite right. The process here is in the heart of uh, Ngāti Paro uh, and a lot of the young people connect in to uh, Ngāti Paro and uh, the Komatua from Ngāti Paroa right behind it and as you saw earlier today uh, their, their presence, their mana is, is there with the process. Uh, I expect that will be replicated as best as possible on the uh, urban marae. Um, you're quite right again that the number of uh, Māori youth in say Auckland in particular, um, the numbers are large. Uh, their families are in different uh, states of health and uh, they're from all over the country. Uh, the Marae Manurewa has a, uh, their trust board has a wide representation of Māori throughout the, from throughout the country. Um, I'm from Taranaki. Um, uh, there is a capacity in pan-tribal urban marae to manage this process well, in my view. Uh, but it needs to be done well. There needs to be good leadership uh, from the marae. Um, there needs to be the ongoing commitment to uh, the kaupapa, the young people, to the whānau and to the process. And I think uh, that if that commitment is there, some of what might appear to be uh, major hurdles will be overcome because people will be uh, resonating with the kaupapa and seeing it as an opportunity to make things better. So uh, there, there's none of the other marae uh, youth courts are established and running as yet uh, but the issues you raise are definitely uh, before us 
they may be challenges, but I think while, while, it's, while the commitment is there from all involved uh, to give it the best shot at that possible, um, then I see that uh, the success that uh, Pūhu Rāwari in Gisborne has experienced will also be uh, seen in the other courts and the other marae, including the pan-tribal urban marae. The family group conference is pivotal uh, to the process. So the family group conference, say for the standard uh, appearance for a young person, is often by way of police arrest, appearance in court, they deny or not deny the charge or charges. If they not deny the charges, a family group conference is directed. The family group conference is something that is uh, confidential to the participants. It involves the uh, police, it involves uh, youth justice, uh, social workers and coordinators. Um, <clears throat> And uh, it involves the victims of offending and the offender, the young person, and their family. And uh, there are other people who can be involved as well, but it's often at the discretion of the youth justice coordinator. Uh, the point of that is that it starts the uh, process by which young people will be held accountable and will be uh, also given the opportunity to put things right that aren't right in their lives to uh, minimise the risk of future offending by them. Uh, now, the family group conference uh, work out a plan as to the way they're going to achieve both those measures, uh, often a punitive aspect, uh, repayment of uh, you know, items that are stolen and can't be replaced. Um, and uh, combined with a rehabilitative aspect, so school attendance, education assessment, whatever, those sorts of things. Now that plan goes back to the regular youth court and usually, oh sorry, before the uh, a marae uh, monitoring process would be considered, uh, those people at the conference need to bear that in mind, think about it and if they believe it's appropriate for this young person and their family then they'll recommend it. So then it goes back to the main courtroom again um, and the presiding judge would look at what this plan entails and if it was one that recommended uh, monitoring on the marae then they would set the next date to be one that coincides with the marae sitting. So that recommendation can be made by either of those professionals or even if the child and the whānau is pushing for it? Mm. Yes, well the, the, the family group conference process uh, requires a buy-in by all concerned to the plan that they um, develop and see that's where uh, victims' involvement in the family group co conference for any young person is seen as very valuable um, because it's often that face-to-face -face, uh, meeting with the victim of offending that makes a big difference to young offenders. These victims are not anonymous. They're real people with <laughs> uh, real homes and property that they've worked hard to obtain, etc. So uh, now the victim would also need to be part of the decision to see the matter monitored on a marae.
So this is like a personalised program for each each young person? Yes, yes. Which means that the period of time that it can take them to get through their tasks can vary. There's no set time, okay, we want um, Jay to be finished by six goes. Yeah. They talk about uh, what's realistically achievable in what time frame at the conference and... and, uh, there were some you would have seen today that have a schedule of tasks to be completed at the back of the family group conference uh, plan and that records all the things and who's doing them by what time uh, in summary form so that if anybody wanted to be rather than read all the maybe at times uh, two or three pages of uh, plan from the conference they can look at the schedule to see when the next thing is due so uh, there is, um, for example, young uh, people are often encouraged to maintain or get part-time work. Uh, they're often encouraged to maintain or develop uh, uh, sporting or recreational activities which are seen in the broader picture to be to their advantage. So they try and work the plan in to ensure they can do those things as well as for example, a number of community work hours by way of a, a, a punitive aspect to the plan. Uh, and as you said before, it's individualised so that it hopefully will draw on the resources of the family and you know there may only be certain times the family car is available to take the young person to a certain place to do work or sport or whatever. So they try and make it uh, realistically achievable. So when you fill in for another judge, does that mean that you're completely reliant on the documentation and the notes that have been made for you to really get to the heart of a case? Because often, like for today, for instance, um, you were seeing some of these young people for the very first time. Mm. There is a file preparation to be done in that we... um, We'll see all the documents in advance, we'll read them, you'll get a sense of where things are for the young person and their family. Um, And then, as you'd have heard, you get the oral feedback at the time on the marae and you uh, continue to develop a sense of where things are for the young person and their family. So... um, it's not necessarily uh, read the papers and make a decision at all um, uh, because, uh, well, you saw examples earlier in the day where uh, young people had done uh, amazing things yeah, that I mean, were a, a, a long way removed from the sort of person they presented on paper when they first appeared. And that's, um, in my view, a, a tribute to... Uh, so this is like the kanohiki, the kanohi stuff, eh? Yeah. I mean, you're able to assess somebody. I'm just thinking back on one of the comments you made that for one of the one of the rangatahi that you know, as he looked on paper when he first presented that he wasn't able to, you know, his attitude was completely different. Now mm. he was able to look somebody in the eye mm. Mm. when he was talking to them, and yes. then he broke out into a hugger. Yes, oh, that, 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 that young man, what what. What occurred today, I think, is the uh, the culmination of this part of the process for him. His 
life's journey, really. He made uh, errors in the past, bad ones, and um, there's, he, through this process he's uh, appreciated the level of support and aroha for him. Um, and he has had some uh, very good support there, both professional and from his wider family. And I think uh, what you saw today is a culmination of that and uh, his acceptance of it and willingness to work to uh, foster and develop more of it. That's a success story, though, eh? It, I certainly hope so. It, so far, it looks that way. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So you're seeing a whole range of rangatahi who are at different parts of the process. Mm. So yeah. that was... There was someone who was discharged today. Yes. Um, but there was also another one who is, you know, he hadn't fulfilled all his tasks. Not that that's a negative thing, but this mm. is just a timing thing. I mean, is that always going to be the case? You're going to have different people at different stages of the continuum, ideally on their way out of the system. Yes, yeah. The whole the underlying the youth court is the understanding that we're dealing with youths. We deal with people who... Uh, uh, can en- engage physically before men- they engage mentally, so they do things uh, that can be uh, spontaneous and stupid. Uh, the point of it is to recognise that uh, they make mistakes, give them the opportunity to remedy the mistake and uh, go into adult life without uh, a record against their name, uh, which uh, can have negative consequences for well, a long time into their future. So getting them through that uh, those vulnerable teenage years is uh, part of it. Uh, and, uh, well, you, you, well you know, you've, you've seen the example of how some of them have responded to that opportunity. The, the majority of uh, young people uh, can manage that process of reorientating, getting over a youthful, stupid mistake uh, without uh, the going to the extent that some of the young people you saw today, but um, uh, for those that need the extra help, the process certainly um, is one that gives it to them. Now, that was the fastest court sitting that I've ever been to. Um, I think we walked on to the marae at about 25 to 9, and then everybody was gone by half past 10. But you actually end up returning to the court, to the courthouse to sit in on youth court matters that haven't been heard at the marae, don't you? Yes, yes. Some would say uh, that (laughs) there was a a greater length of time spent with these uh, youngsters this morning than would normally be the case. And and that's also uh, one of the areas of this process that enhances the sense of fair hearing and and justice and so forth. Um, the, The main courtroom has limited time has a number, uh, often an inordinate number of matters to to hear, and uh, when you refer before about sitting waiting, uh, sometimes they might wait for people might wait for a long period of time, and then uh, they are dealt with in a with such speed when they finally get into court that they yeah, maybe it's very unsatisfactory. Yeah, well, it, it, and and uh, this uh, process is. Um, uh, 
desire to make sure it's meaningful for these youngsters. Kia ora, I'm Meredith Akuhata-Brown. Um, I've lived in Gisborne all my life, so I was born and raised here, but um, recently I learnt my own whakapapa history, and kōkari oi te maunga, whangaro te moana, wangaro te marae, tama inu pō te hapu, wakato te iwi. So, yeah, kia ora. <laughs> so what's the mahi that you do? I'm a lay, lay advocate. I've been appointed by the judge um, to work alongside the rangatahi um, through the process. So I afi them, tautoko their whānau, and really look at trying to build on their cultural um, capital, if you like, but um, trying, to, trying to find out the links that are broken within the extended whānau. So trying to, we're, at the moment we're looking at um, meeting with Komatua to kind of kōrero to them about the, just the breakdown of the whānau um, and some of the reasons perhaps why our rangatahi are here in the court process. So, um, yeah, so support worker, but to, it's, it's in legislation. Um, not a lot of courts throughout New Zealand have actually used lay advocates, so Judge Hemi Tamanu set it up that um, and appointed four of us, so these four of us here in Gisborne. So as a lay advocate, um, so you kind of... Because the whole court system can be quite intimidating, eh? Absolutely. So you... <laughs> As a lay person, you're, you're able to almost translate what's going yes. on for the whānau and for the young person yes, to make yes. that process less intimidating. So, because often, <laughs> because it is so intimidating, they don't hear things. Oh, gosh. So, does that yes. mean that you're kind of almost listening on their behalf as well, just to check to see that they understood yeah, we're, what's we're going on? Yeah, we're kind of translators to, to a degree because we've had to learn. Because even for myself, I'm, I've not been a part of the, the due to, you know, justice kind of gig, been on the jury once. Um, so, it was actually quite daunting even for me as an adult who's really much kept out of trouble. Um, you do have a sense of, you know, overwhelm this process. So for us, yeah, to really just break it down, um, allow them to, to know when they can speak or, you know, just to kind of encourage them to have their say, but the manner in which they say what they have to say. <laughs> um, you know, whanos aren't sure. They're a little bit naive to a system as well. So we've had to kind of coach them along in some, to some degree. But in saying that, yeah, pretty much interpret and break it down, simplify it. But also we've actually had to advocate on behalf where perhaps um, the system has let some families down. Um, and do you also end up having a bit of a monitoring role? Because I guess that you end up becoming quite close to these young people in their whānau, so yes. you end up hearing. <laughs> well, that's been the hardest part of this mahi. For us, it's a process, but as a youth worker here in Gisborne, I work within the relationship, and that the work is the relationship. That's how I, how I work. So the frustration is that you do get alongside a young person in their whānau, and then when they're discharged... I don't, you know, I don't have to work with them anymore. But I see that as being the floor. It's a long, t- it's a journey walking side by side until they really do make it. So I'm really strongly about, um, you know, cutting down recidivist offending. And I believe through the relationship, that's the key. But typically, funding and all the bureaucracy that comes with a role <laughs> frustrate me. Yeah. Now, as a youth worker and as somebody who's lived and you know, born and bred in Gisborne, you must be finding that you're. You either know some of these kids and their whanau yes. or their uncles and aunties. I mean, how's that? 
it's that's kind of to my a benefit in a way, based on my own whakapapa noting I am, you know, I'm not from here, but um, acknowledging my tipuna now, um, because a lot of my role is about connections, about reconnecting and looking for that extended whānau too who can support. I mean, we've, I've had, I have had uh, young men bail to my address because I couldn't find that family that would take him on. And so my husband and I actually both work with youth at risk, if you like, and we'd like to set up a, a respite kind of uh, place for young people to go to just for that time out period, just get them kind of, you know, feeling good about themselves, etc., and then connecting them back to their whānaus. So a lot of the work that's actually in this role is very strongly about the cultural cultural connections but um, so yeah knowing whānaus I actually have found it a real bonus you know because in Gisborne it is a little place in that sense so you can say oh, I know your nanny your nanny wouldn't like it if you were in the court you know and, and reminding rangatahi that they have um, tipuna who you know have mana so a big part of our role is actually reminding young people who they really are and that to be Māori isn't to be an offender um, what I do is a choice I make as an adolescent but the sad fact is that a lot of our Māori are doing it, so, yeah. So do most of the young people who come through here, do they whakapapa to Tūranga Nui Ākiwa? I, um, we've got a few, um, I've met a few tūhoi. I've actually come across a couple of tainui as well. Um, of course, majority are te aitanga, mahaki, um, kahanunu, um, but in the majority, Ngāti Parau is their iwi. So we have engaged the runanga, who have done some research. And there are runanga people here today. Aye, aye, yeah. And, and really, I mean, what, what this marae has started, really, has it's been a catalyst for people to start addressing these issues and looking at what is what is going wrong, what is happening within our farm. Know, the isolation, the you know, marginalised, and the, you know all the issues that really sit with Māori today in our community. The Smarai Court has kind of brought them to a, a, a front, which has been great, really, because I know there are a lot more people passionate about getting involved, but weren't sure how. So we're looking to get more people involved in it, and um, it's exciting to hear that they want to put the court up in Manuera, and um, other parts of New Zealand are looking into it. So, yeah. Kia ora, Meredith Akuhata Brown. Judge Greg Hikaka and the Fano of some of the boys at the hearing. Stay tuned, we'll catch up with them later on in the year. Titiro Kimurida, Kiamohio Aitehuarahi, Kaimua. Look to the past to understand the future. This whakatauki is an expression that means we can look to our history, our whakapapa, our stories, to understand the pathway before us, and how this can affect our life. Tamaki Makoto, Auckland, is about to get all Indigenous. Joe Tirito talks about the upcoming Indigenous Peoples Conference. And I'm with the Fresh Jam Poets, who explain to me what exactly is spoken word. Hoki mai hei tērā wiki e te iwi. Mauri ora tātou katoa.